The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Claire Armistead. And I'm Sean Kane. This week... And um, yeah, I wanted to write about that, about the fact that sex is very trivial, very, yeah, very melancholic, very sad sometimes. Mais oui, bien sûr. Leila Slimani joins us to talk about her latest book, Adele, the story of a self-destructive sex addict. And author Kristen Rupenian speaks with Hadley Freeman about how writing one short story called Cat Person threw her headfirst into the spotlight and made her rather dauntingly an internationally recognised expert on modern love. We'll also be talking about Andrea Levy, whose novel Small Island brought the Windrush generation into mainstream literature back in 2004, and who sadly died last week. It does bear saying that the content of today's podcast is of a quite sexual and sometimes violent nature. So, as ever, if that's not quite your bag, do go and have a scout through our many other podcasts in this feed. We're sure you'll find something that works for you today. But first, Leila Slimani. Sean, you've been interested in her work ever since Lullaby came out in English last year, haven't you? Yes, yeah. But it's so it's, it's so dark. It's just it as well so Richard's not on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, Richard would not like this. He likes reading good French and he would not like this book. I mean, yes, so there is something really tantalising about her writing and uh, certainly how it is conveyed by her translator, Sam Taylor, who does such an amazing job. But there's a detachment and a flatness in her writing, which is just really affecting and really cool. And so she writes about these really horrific situations, whether it is in Lullaby, a nanny murdering the children that she's looking after, or whether it is in Adele, a very damaged woman who finds fulfillment in sort of the thrill of the chase. You know, it's not actually sex that she finds a thrill in. It's about making men want to have sex with her. And all of her books have this real darkness and this grittiness and this, this sort of portrayal of, of modern France that is just so counter to, I think, the sort of image of France that perhaps romantics like myself are sold, that it's this sort of beautiful place and full of beautiful people. And then actually, no, there's this real grittiness and there's this these real issues of class and race that are going on. We've seen a lot of it in the news. So Leila Samani's writing is just... It, it's sort of it, it feels really fresh, even though you know, even in in her own perspective, like she says, she's not the first French writer to write about this side of France. But it just feels very fresh to me, and it's it's kind of great. I, I, I'm always kind of slightly thrilled when I see young women writing about things that I still think are classed as dangerous. They're quite short, aren't they? So they're like yes. short, sharp shocks of of novels. Yes, exactly. There's there's almost something pulpy about them. And even her chapters are very short in parts. So you're sort of going from snippet to snippet of this woman's life um, and basically bad decision to bad decision. And there's not very much happiness in there, but there's a lot of wit and there's a lot of anger to sort of drive it along. And you just, you kind of compulsively read it, even though there's no real plot apart from, is she going to be found out? And it's part of a trilogy of nightmares, as she calls it. Yeah. A trilogy. So, I haven't even started the first. I'm not sure I could yeah. stand three of them. Well, I suppose it's not, it's not sort of like a Marlon James, like, you know, 700 page uh, trilogy. But like, it's, it's a sort of that she's looking at her worst fears, basically. And so she is a mother. And so she decided that she was going to confront the idea of a what if your children just completely out of your control? What if they were murdered? And then looking at sort of the loss of self in Adele, that this is a woman that just has no she she views herself as an object she's just a vessel for other men 
for men to use and sort of exploring the depths of that feeling so it's certainly not that these are autobiographical novels but she's exploring something that's sort of clicked on in her psyche and she wants to really explore how how dark she can get and it doesn't ever feel gratuitous which is the really interesting thing she's not doing this for show this is not like a brett easton ellis approach to violence this is just it's so realistic that that's where you find the horror so one of the odd things about books in translation is that it often sort of gets the order all muddled up Um, (laughs) you never quite know it's not necessarily the first book by the author that comes out first in translation and this is true of Slimani isn't it yes so yeah she actually wrote Adele back in 2014 so that's sort of before Harvey Weinstein like before Me Too and everything that you know how it's shaped our conversations now about sex and gender so I I sort of started by asking her whether it was strange to be talking about a five-year-old book again and whether she now sees it with fresh eyes yeah of course and it's very interesting for me because I have the feeling that the woman who wrote the book is dead she she disappeared I'm a new woman I've changed so it's very interesting for me to try to understand this woman I used to be and I think also that society changed you know uh, between the the publication of the book in in France and now there was Me Too movement and Mm. the Harvey Weinstein uh, uh, case so it's very interesting to to look at this book and to read this book after all that happened Mm. I read an interview with Murakami recently and he was saying that he'd read one of his books in English and it felt like an entirely new book. Like he, he was reading it not knowing what was going to happen next and it was his own book. <laughs> Do you ever have that when you read a book in English? Yes, yes, I have that. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised by sometimes by myself and also by the talent of Sam Teller, who is my translator mm. for Lullaby and, and Adele and by his uh, ability to really convey the atmosphere mm. I'm trying to, to build in my book. So it's also... Uh, like uh, admiration I admire him so much for the work he's doing you know I think that we don't speak enough of uh, translators but they are very very important without translator I couldn't be here today and I couldn't speak to you and to the English speaking public so it's wonderful to have the luck to meet someone like Sam Teller who can translate my work and who is so faithful to what I'm trying to do as a writer. Well that struck me actually reading Adele was how detached it felt and I thought that's that I don't read in French and I thought well it must be there in in the French this sort of sense of detachment but also this sort of underlying anxiety and I was kind of amazed that it was it was so well translated that this was all still conveyed in the English and I don't know whether it's really a compliment to say that it felt like a book that could have been written in English first yeah yeah it feels like a compliment (laughs) it's sort of a testament to Sam's ability to to convey your your work to an English yeah and you know when you write a book what you what you want actually is that your book could be read in any languages by anyone anywhere at any time I think that what I'm trying to what I want is universality what I dream of is that anyone could read my book so of course that's a compliment thank you (laughs) it's funny today actually I saw a poster for Adele on the underground the London underground and uh, it said mother journalist and then sex addict in in red (laughs) and I sort of thought that's so funny that they've used the color red because there's all these connotations to red as a sort of sexy thing because I think this is possibly the least sexy book about sex that I've ever I've ever read and I truly mean that as a compliment that sex in this is really not something that's that's savored and even though she is a sex addict I get the sense that Adele doesn't really enjoy 
sex. sex. Absolutely. But, you know, I think that I wanted also to write this book to express a certain disappointment about sex. I think that a lot of women are disappointed by sex when they discover what it is really. For men, I think it's different because men with um, the porn uh, industry, the porn images, they are in a certain way used to a non-glamorous vision of sex. Mm -hmm. But we girls, as little girls and teenagers, we have this impression that sex is going to be so glamorous and beautiful and in a very nice bedroom with the lover who cares about us. But the truth is that in the majority of cases, it's not like that. So I'm sure that for a lot of women, sex is a disappointment. But we don't say it. It's a taboo. We don't really share this disappointment. And um, yeah, I wanted to write about that, about the fact that sex is very trivial, very, yeah, very melancholic, very sad sometimes. Because mm. uh, the whole novel feels very melancholy. There's this whole sort of desperation to Adele that escalates throughout the book but it, it has been likened to Madame Bovary so many times but I suppose it is similar in that she has this on the outside a very ideal life you know she has a handsome doctor husband and a, she has a child and she has a job and she's also very beautiful and this sort of very bourgeois life that she has in, in Paris but then she's always desiring this thing that is sort of always yeah. unobtainable she wants more. She doesn't know what she wants, but she wants more. And the parallel with Madame Bovary is uh, completely relevant. Uh, Madame Bovary, she wants more to like, uh, like Anna Karenine, mm. like Thérèse Desquerou. And I think that all those very famous female characters who want more are always punished mm. for wanting more. And I was asking this in this book, I'm trying to ask this question. Is it possible for a woman to want more and not being punished for that? Because as you said, she has this ideal life, but who decides? that is, this is ideal to mm -hmm. be married have a child and have a wonderful job everyone tells you but you have you have it all you have everything what could you what could you want what could you desire now that you have everything and maybe that it is a nightmare to have everything mm -hmm. maybe it's a nightmare not to have anything to desire left and maybe what's important in life is not to have but to continue to desire mm -hmm. well she does she certainly has this desire for something that's perhaps not sex but also desire itself that she's always really uh, felt that she was most thrilled by the idea that she was being admired and that she was being desired by people but as soon as it came to the actual act of sex it seemed almost always that she was disappointed that she was always detached during looking at the ceiling for example and just sort of like considering it and thinking about you know where her next sort of sex act would be while she was having sex exactly <laughs> what she likes is the hunt mm. what she likes is erotism desire this very this moment where a man looks at her and she looks at a man and she they understand the both of them that something is going to happen but as soon as it uh, as it happens she lose interest in it. So, yeah, she's interested in, in desire. And both of your books um, that we've, we've seen in English, Lullaby and Adele, they both have mothers at the heart of them. And I found it really interesting when you were doing all the press for Lullaby, you were talking about how your book had shocked people because it, it does sort of revolve around this case where a nanny murders the children that she's looking after. But you were saying that you felt that people were mainly shocked because we have ideas about what maternal instinct is and part of us 
were sort of outraged by the idea that this mother had sort of selfishly left her children with this woman who would end up murdering them. And you were saying that you feel that the maternal instinct is really at heart a male construct that has been used to keep women at home looking yeah. after their kids. And what is interesting is that people were saying that the mother was leaving her children selfishly to a nanny, but they never judge the father. Mm. They never say why the father is the father is going out to work, but everyone considers it as normal. Mm -hmm. It should be the mother who stay at home, but why? Yeah. I don't understand why. And, um, you know, even feminist people, they don't even hear themselves saying that, but the truth is that they judge the mother. And uh, what I wanted also to say in Adele, as in Lullaby, is that when you become a mother, at the same time, it's wonderful and something comes, something new comes to the world. But at the same time, something dies in you. There's a woman who dies in you forever and that and you will never, never find this woman again. And you're in grief mm -hmm. when you have a, a child. And it's a taboo to say that. And people will tell you, oh, okay, no, but you, you have a little baby. You is so beautiful and who you love so much. That's true. But there is also something very melancholic when you become a, a mother because It's a sentence for life. Mm -hmm. You will be a mother until you die. And every day of your life, you will think of your child and the fact you will be worried about him. And where is he? Is he okay? Does he need me? Does he miss me? So it's hard to, to become a mother too. It's not only about love and tenderness. Mm. It's interesting to me that your book has come out now. You mentioned this about at the start about how so many things have happened around our wider conversations about gender and, and womanhood but your book is coming out now and we've had so many novels recently that have examined brutal sex written by women and also the ways in which women can be degraded either willingly or unwillingly during sex so particularly uh, like Normal People by Sally Rooney but also mm. um, just this month we've had the new Kirsten Rapenian short stories uh, You Know You Want This and I found it so interesting reading your novel because I've just read her short stories and there is a story in it where a man uh, meets with a woman who asks him to kick her during sex and uh, I read there's a scene in Adele where Adele asks two male sex workers to kick her uh, in the vagina while they're sort of meeting and My reaction was so physical to that scene. I felt so nauseous and I sort of crouched in on myself. I was on the underground and so I had this book and I was really hoping no one was reading it over my shoulder. And I was sort of crouching in on myself just because it was so horrifying. And I find it so interesting though that I've I've not read this sort of level of a woman being degraded in fiction at all and then now I've got two books in the same month that are doing it even though yours was written five years ago yeah but you know I think that um, a lot of women feel nothing during sex uh, I spoke to to many friends of mine who said you know I don't feel that much it's not that wonderful and mm -hmm. that uh, terrific and but they Sometimes I don't dare to, to say it to their partner because they are supposed to be uh, very sensual and mm -hmm. sexual and to feel something. And I think that Adele actually feels nothing. That's why she, she needs this violence because she just wants to feel something, to feel her body. Mm. Her body is just, um, um, uh, in French I would say, a receptacle, something that receives mm -hmm. uh, men, uh, men's sex and men's hands and everything. But 
actually she she feels nothing mm. so yeah and what's funny is that it was written long before um the the me too movement and all this um all these uh, novels but yeah i think that maybe now women have this need to express the violence that we are experiencing having sex and sometimes also the need of violence that we that we feel without understanding where it comes from mm. it's very irrational because there are ways i suppose to pursue that that violence in a in a way that is controlled whereas in this scene in the book it feels very much like it's out of her hands because these these two men are very hesitant to start with and then they realize that she's getting something out of it and it escalates very quickly and then it is out of her control and i sort of thought throughout the whole book that it raises really interesting questions about like is she is she is she liberated is she sexually liberated or is she actually really in a prison you know is she really i think she's in a prison yeah i think that she's um i think that anyone who is an addict is in a prison when I began to write the book, I interviewed some psychiatrists and I asked a psychiatrist what it is to be an addict. How would you define addiction? And he said, it's the when you lose the freedom to say no. Mm. And I think that it's very, very true and very relevant. And that's exactly what's happening to, to Adele. She lost this freedom to say no. And she's a slave to her own desire, a slave to this addiction, a slave to, to sex. And she's so alienated that, of course, she can't have any pleasure and she can't feel good in this relationship because she always feels so guilty and so dirty so no I don't think that she's liberated no because we sort of have these ideas I think about women having sex freely but she's certainly not having sex in any way that could be construed as healthy <laughs> yeah and, uh, and you know I think that also she she wants to be an object mm. she does she doesn't want to be a subject she doesn't want to be empowered and she's not a feminist in mm. that in that point of view actually I think that she wants to please men and to be to embody a sort of uh, a man fantasy so uh, that's probably also why she's not liberated because mm. she lives in a very old vision of of sexuality she she's not very modern she's um yeah i think that she's very alienated to this vision of uh, of womanhood mm. and how has france how did they react to the book in france because a part of me perhaps it's a stereotype would expect that perhaps english speaking countries perhaps would have a sort of prudishness to approaching these subjects but i heard that that some people in france were very shocked by this book but also it struck me that if they were shocked by it you know it's possibly that it's because you wrote it as opposed to Quelbeck or you know yeah exactly there was sh I wouldn't say that they were shocked uh would say that they were surprised mm. surprised that a woman who doesn't look crazy and very dark <laughs> and um, who looks normal and who comes from a Muslim country mm. would write such a book. I think that they were very surprised also by the darkness of, of the book mm. because uh, when you see me, when I speak and in real life, I'm not that dark. And they were surprised. How can someone imagine such dark thing and be so... Yeah, so gloomy, I suppose. <laughs> and when you won the Prix Goncourt for Lullaby, you said afterwards that you felt people reacted in a way as if they they didn't feel like it should have been you because of your race, because of your gender. But you've been so celebrated as a French writer around the world. I wonder whether you still feel that way now about your position in France. No, I think that people now are... I think that people were 
the majority were very happy that I that I won the prize. Um, what I meant, I think, at that time, if I remember this uh, this sentence, is that people were probably surprised that a book about a nanny, about a woman, about motherhood and diapers and babies could win a mm -hmm. prize like the Prix Goncourt because the Prix Goncourt is all very often given to men and books about history, war, big love stories like great literature, not literature of women, mm -hmm. as some people would say with a And this, pe some people despise this kind of literature, the fact that you would write a whole book about a nanny. So, yeah, I think that people were surprised about that. But then I think also that uh, a lot of people were very happy that uh, a woman who, who is an immigrant and who comes from Morocco, as I said, a Muslim country, and who is a liberated woman could win uh, this prize. And it gave probably hope to uh, a lot of uh, young women from uh, immigration in France because they have the feeling that maybe they can conquer the France and conquer the world. Leila Slimani there. And we'll be back after the break with another young woman writer who looks set to conquer the world. It's time to focus. Well, I think that Democrats are going to have to contend with the fact that everything is about Donald Trump. Today in Focus is the new daily podcast from The Guardian. Join me, Anushka Astana, for the best stories from our journalists around the world. Subscribe now to Today in Focus from The Guardian. Welcome back. Before we hear from cat person author Kristen Rupenian, I just wanted to take a few seconds to let you know that The Guardian is editorially independent, so we're free to follow any story wherever it takes us. But producing in-depth, really meaningful journalism is expensive, and we want to keep it open for everyone. So we need to ask for your help. If you can lend a hand and help to secure our future, then please visit support.theguardian.com. Thank you. Now, has anybody not read Cat Person? When Kristen Rupenian's short story was published in The New Yorker, within days it had become a true breakout phenomenon, one of those rare things that rarely happens to mm. fiction, let alone short stories. Sean, you were quite early on to it, weren't you? Yes, well, it was, it was funny, actually. I was, I, in a way, I suppose Twitter kind of warps time, so I was probably quite late to it. I was, I was reading it when it was trending sort of thing. But it, it, sort of, it only took a few days for the story to go crazy online, and it was just basically this sort of back and forward of people that were in very set camps about what they thought the story meant and it was just so interesting to watch because you just don't see that much debate about really anything to do with literature you know it, the response of it was just so emphatic and actually the 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 one real standout story I was trying to think of other short stories that provoked any sort of kind of public reaction And I was thinking of uh, the story we mentioned last week, uh, Guts by Chuck Palahniuk, and also way back, another New Yorker short story, uh, Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, which provoked just crazy responses at the time. Um, people writing in and people debating it in, in newspapers. And it, it's great in that I think it's a really well-written 
story cat person I'm it's about basically it's it's hit a moment hasn't it also yes. because it's about and what what constitutes bad sex yes. and and this is it's so much in the ether at the moment isn't it is is bad sex about coercion mm-hmm. um, is it possible for a woman to consent without wanting to what yes. does that mean yes and i think that's that's exactly the thing that's so intriguing about it is that she caught a real uncomfortable truth that i think a lot of women recognized even if they hadn't been on a bad date but they saw an impulse in themselves to please men in the hope that they won't get hurt which is a really uncomfortable thing to discuss but she does it with such intelligence and there's so many women that responded to this story saying well yeah like I I haven't been raped I don't think that I was forced to do this but I agreed to do things I didn't want to and I did it without thinking. And this story has made me think about that. And that's a very uncomfortable thing to confront about yourself, especially because so many young women would consider themselves sexually liberated and, you know, they have choices and they're informed. But there is still an impulse that exists in young women right now that they will still agree to do things they don't want to do. And I think that's just so, so interesting. Well, Kristen joined our own Hadley Freeman at a Guardian Live event in London, and it's worth bearing in mind when they're talking that whilst everyone there had read Cat Person, her new book, You Know You Want This, had come out in the UK that very same day, so no one in the audience had had a chance to read it yet. One thing that really strikes me when... Well, actually, one of the book stories I really wanted to, to ask you about was The Mirror, the Bucket and the Old Fly yeah. Bone, which I really loved, and it, it stands out from the collection because it's obviously a very different style. Yeah. Although still talking about the themes, well, themes that are very close to my heart, which is female desire for independence is seen as narcissism, and also love is often a form of narcissism. Yeah. But it's written, and this isn't giving anything away, I don't think, like almost like a 14th century fable, really. Yeah. It feels like it's been around for centuries. Mm. I wondered how it came to you to write you know, very contemporary themes in that kind of style. Yeah, I mean, many of my stories, whenever I do an event like this, I've done a few now, I always feel like I'm doing the most revisionist history where I'm like, my intentions were. <laughs> like, I don't, like, when I sit down to write, I never have that in my mind. Um, I'm always sort of, I often think I'm going to write a very different story than I end up writing. Mm-hmm. I often, you know, or aim, I'm aiming for an end that I never get to. But it's also true that often the stories that, end up meaning the most to me or that I feel like work the best are stories that come in a sort of like hypnotic flow Mm -hmm. where it's just like they're unfolding faster than I can keep up which like doesn't happen always and certainly there are stories that are dragged out Mm -hmm. word by word but but the mirror of the bucket and old thigh bone was one of those kind of like dream stories where it's like I had an image I also had a feeling the story is one of the older ones in the book and I at the time I was I was in a relationship that was ending and I couldn't acknowledge it like I I didn't want to know it and I was spending a lot of time telling myself that the thing that I knew I wanted which was to leave was selfish and narcissistic and lazy and bad and I was trapped in that kind of like mirror of it was a series of mirrors about like the kind of person I thought I was and the kind of person I wanted to be and I, I like wrote that story really quickly and like a burst and I was in therapy at the time and I like brought it to my therapist and I'm like I don't know what's going on with me <laughs> but I just wrote this story can you please help me um and actually she said something really interesting that I think helps shed light on the story which is she's like in the story as is true in all fairy tales the world hinges on the fate of the relationship the entire kingdom will fail if like the princess doesn't make the right match and I think that is one of the stories that does carry weight from the fairy tales we read the idea that like the romantic match 
is what everything else in your life hinges on and that everything that you've been before is coming to like mm. this particular point. Mm. And that's just a story, but it's one that has a lot of traction in mm. our heads mm. or did in mind back then. So you didn't write them all at the same time, the stories. They were written over several periods. Yeah, I would say over pretty regularly over a period of like five or six years. Because it often, it's sometimes seen with the collection, there's a real divide between those stories that are very based in realism, mm-hmm. such as Cat Person or The Good Guy, and those that have a kind of surreal metaphorical element to them, such as Sardines or something yeah. like that. Did Were you writing those stories at different times, or were you just kind of mixing up your different approaches? There was, there was difference. Mm-hmm. I think I have always been sort of a reader who reads across genres. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of, I think all of the stories are in one way like horror, or another horror inflected, but some of them land more solidly in that space. But something that I did think happened, and I didn't notice this until long after the collection had sort of been put together, was that a series of the later stories are the more realist ones, mm-hmm. specifically Cat Person and Good Guy, mm-hmm. were written relatively late in the game. And I kind of think that possibly one sliver of what happened was that I really care about plot. Like, I really love a story that moves. Like, mm-hmm. that is sort of the thing that matters to me the most, at least on First Street. And um, I think I learned plot in a large part from horror stories which are kind of amazing when you're a writer because there's sort of a single singular metric of success like is your reader scared you know like are they scared enough are they scared enough to keep turning pages but not scared enough they're going to close the book Mm -hmm. that's such a sweet spot Mm -hmm. and so if you have to keep aiming for that always you're going to know sort of what you have a lot of like sort of guardrails for where you need to go Mm -hmm. and I think that maybe part of what happened is that in some of the later stories like good guys you know a 60 70 page novella in which a large part of the action is internal it's Mm -hmm. about you know the guy in the story is like remembering his youth and teenage years and I think my goal was to write a story that moved with the pace of a horror novel that gave you the sort of feeling of, oh my God, I can't look away, but I have to, you know, I have to keep going, but I want to look away. Um, and I think maybe the more horror elements helped scaffold me in the early stages. And then occasionally I started moving out into a space where I could go farther, um, like in a more sort of internal space and still keep that kind of tension. So who do you read mainly? Is it is it mainly horror writers, short story writers? I would say there's a kind of astonishing range. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, have, I go through periods, it's funny, where I feel like all I want to read is horror. Um, that was true in my early, early adolescence and it was true like a few years ago. It was like I don't have the patience. It was a time of like high anxiety. Mm-hmm. I was like I just, all I want is a story that will grab me and force me to pay attention so I won't think about the rest of my stupid life. And that like... <laughs> Um, and that, that hunger like rises or and drops in intensity, but, um, so yeah, so I love, um, like the two that I often cite are, um, Shirley Jackson, Mm -hmm. who's like really just the pitch perfect horror writer for me, but like, so like out of her heart, I don't even need to say so much more because that is such an achievement, but like just line by line, word for word, Mm -hmm. she's like my dream Mm. and that because she's funny too Mm. and that I just think Mm. um but then Stephen King also was the one that like I read Stephen King I think when I was 11 and 12 which are the times that you will care about fiction in a way you never will again Mm. and I think I mean I care about it deeply my whole life is oriented around it but I will never read a book with the level of fevered intensity that I read the stand when I was 12 (laughs) and so I feel like that made me in a lot of ways I think whatever you read at that age makes you the writer that you are and now I read, you know, lots and lots and lots of things. I read a lot of, a ton of contemporary fiction and love it. Um, but I think of those as like two kind of like touchstones. Are you surprised you're a short story writer? Was that a format you ever foresaw for yourself? You know, um, 
I didn't foresee any of this, so it's sort of like hard to even even say. I will, what is true is that I, as long as I've been working on short stories, I've been working on larger larger projects as well. Mm-hmm. And often I would write short stories as a kind of escape mm-hmm. from um, the larger the novel or whatever that I was mm-hmm. working on. Um, and I think I love short stories. I read them a ton as a kid, also mm-hmm. especially genre short stories mm-hmm. like the Stephen King is also Ray Bradbury, like those other just kind of like Four Past Midnight, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, I love them and then I was sort of wandered away from them for a while and um, then came back really passionately in the last like five or ten years Mm -hmm. Um, and so I I get it um, but I didn't know like I didn't predict it and I'm not I think there are people who are really just feel that one genre is theirs and one is not and I don't think that because it's again it's not how I feel as a reader Mm. like I read them both so I imagine I would love to write them both someday one thing I'm guessing you didn't foresee is that people would read Cat Person and will read this collection and have the same reaction which is see you as a dating expert yeah as someone who knows what can (laughs) advise on how to do this I mean it is weird because truly I mean that does continually baffle me because I feel like whether you have just read Cat Person or you've read the whole book, all you know is like this person has a very screwy take on relationships, you know? And so the idea that I could, you know, that out of this could come someone who knows what she's doing, I think is kind of absurd. But I don't know. I mean, I think someone said once, I have, I was really baffled by that. And then someone said like, there that I hope is true, is that like underneath all of the like horror stuff, there's a, and like, sort of repugnance that is in there there's a lack of judgment that people find comforting and I'm like if that is true I feel proud like that is a thing that I want is to be able to like give people a book that doesn't tell them how to live that doesn't tell them how screwed up they are Mm. that isn't trying to fix them Mm. that just is a book where you can sort of play around in some of the like darker spaces that you don't always have a chance to explore now, obviously, there's a lot about heterosexual relationships in the book. Would mm-hmm. you write about gay relationships? Yeah, I mean, I have. Mm-hmm. The book itself, I mean, the book was, I, I selected it um, out of a larger pool of stories. And when I was putting it together, I was thinking about some really signal themes that it seemed like, that wasn't even necessarily heterosexual sex. It was about, I was thinking about power. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about power dynamics. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me that the stories that were, that touched that in the most kind of live wire way, mm-hmm. they did tend to center around relationships between men and women. Mm-hmm. But the, I do also, sometimes I think the collection's a lot queerer than it appears in first glance. Mm-hmm. So if anyone mm-hmm. wants to write a think piece about that, they're certainly <laughs> welcome to. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think like anything, like any other, you know, movement and perspective, it mm. takes some thought. And like, I, I, it's, I also do sort of feel like it takes me 10 years to process anything that happens to me anyway. Yeah. And this is my first serious relationship with a woman and mm-hmm. to like, just give it that time to like bubble in and no matter how happy it is, it'll probably come out as a horror story someday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you got a decade reprieve there, exactly. Kelly. <laughs> Emma Brox, who interviewed uh, Kristen yeah. for The Guardian, she wrote in her piece, which I thought was so true, is that what the, what the book really shows is how when women reject men, men hate women. Yeah. And when women, are, when women are rejected, they hate themselves. Yeah. And that feels, you know, you know incredibly relevant. Yeah. And something that a lot of, I'm sure, people on both sexes will have experienced. Was that also a conscious theme when you were working on yeah, it? Yeah, you know, I, before she said that, I don't know that I'd ever heard it expressed in exactly that mm. way. Um, the sort of catchphrase about the difference between women and men that rang loudest in my ears was the one about, like, women 
are afraid, men are afraid women will laugh at them, yeah. men are afraid, or <laughs> women are afraid men will kill yeah. them. Mm-hmm. And I did feel like that asymmetry of fear yeah. um, is, a real, is a real theme of the book. Um, but yeah, I, I, that does ring true to me, and mm-hmm. I am always sort of cautious about making any kind of like fully blanket statement. Yeah, no, no, for sure. But that does, yeah, yeah, the way that women in particular internalize exactly yeah. the hostility of others I think is is really true and is something I want to dig at and a lot of men book. not all men not all yeah, men yeah, yeah. Um, throw it out basically yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Totally. rather than rather than yeah. and I think it's like you know it's not a coincidence that the last story in the book is about a woman who's fully externalizing yeah, right. her rage you know who just wants that you know fighter, by the way. yeah exactly exactly who wants something and is like just gonna go and get it it's mm-hmm. really you don't see stories like that a lot it's true especially stories where that desire spoiler is indulged without consequence yeah. <laughs> Kristen Rupenian there. Listening to her and Layla, it feels as if there's a solid new wave of writing that appears to be lifting the log of love and examining the grime, mold and beetles <laughs> scurrying around underneath, doesn't it, Sean? Yeah, it makes it sound really like you just never want to date again. <laughs> Reading Kristen Rupenian. I've read her short story collection and uh, so many of them hinge around sort of first meetings and first dates and you just kind of like, oh, God, I'm so glad I'm in a relationship. <laughs> I just never want to be single again. And actually, interestingly, this week I wrote a piece for The Guardian because there's a domestic violence charity in Scotland that came out publicly calling for Canongate to stop publishing The Game by Neil Strauss, which is a sort of notorious... It's not It's not a pickup guide. It's a guide for being a pickup artist and pursuing uh, members of the opposite sex, but it's sort of... It's supposed to be like a sort of expose, except in the book, Neil gets very involved in there and actually becomes a pickup artist himself called Style. Um, They all have these monikers and stuff. And it's actually a really interesting book. And it's always been this book that's been a bit notorious in my mind because... I remember I used to sell it to teenage boys. Teenage boys would used to come into the bookshop that I'd work in and the boys were always the same. They would never look me in the eye. They'd sort of very sullenly ask for it. And then I'd give them the book and they'd sort of look at me as like a challenge. Like they'd sort of look at me as, as if I was going to challenge them on having bought this this book that even then had this really sort of scuzzy dirty, reputation. Yeah, really scuzzy d- reputation that it was going to teach men how to sort of trick women into liking them. And there's all these techniques in there like negging, which is now sort of common parlance. But it's this sort of idea that if you reduce a woman's self-esteem by sort of dropping in negative comments about her, she'll hang around to try and earn your approval, which is just such a re- reprehensible thing to do. But anyway, this domestic violence charity said, look, we think that some of the attitudes in this book are sort of linked to a wider problem with violence against women in society. And whether it was sort of just a gesture that they they wanted to do it, but they did call them out publicly. And anyway, I wrote a piece about this and I thought, I was thinking, I was like, well, so many dating books, so many dating guides have just really retrograde approaches to gender and power. And so I set myself the task of going back and reading quite a few of them and they're disgusting like so many of them are still awful and even though his book was published back in 2005 there's so many books that still push really backwards approaches to women that are often written by women and so my outcome from all this was that it's actually not about male versus female writing about dating and it's not about men being particularly misogynist in their approach. It's just the whole dating sphere is actually hasn't really caught up with the wider sexual politics 
and how things have moved on. And so that's why I think books like uh, Leila Samani's Adele and also Kristen Rapinian's book and all of her short stories, that they actually, they're capturing something that is true and it's better to read these books and get a sense of where we are now. True and nuanced is the other thing, yes. isn't it? That, that there's an awful lot of sort of broad brush stroking. Yes, that, that exactly. Yeah. That I think there's a lot of dating guides that approach gender in the way that, you know, all men are messes and they're all horrible sort of beasts that need to sort of solve this by just disguising their worst traits with charm. And then women all want to be dominated and we're all flighty and narcissistic and you only have to appeal to our you know, sense of vanity and then we'll fall in love with you. Whereas these books are sort of presenting women as being quite conniving in a lot of ways, but also holding quite a lot of power, but also unknowingly holding that power. And perhaps they use it in really negative ways that affect themselves or affect men. And men as well have these great deep interior lives that, you know, they feel just as much as women do. And I think these books just, they capture a truth that doesn't necessarily exist in a lot of books that have come before. So Kristen and Layla, if you're listening to this, carry on carrying on. <laughs> Please help us. <laughs> you know you want this is with Jonathan Cape and Adele is with Faber. Both are out now. And finally, it was with great sadness that we learnt that Andrea Levy died of cancer last week. Her great success was with Small Island in 2004. It brought us the Windrush generation, really for the first time in the mainstream for quite a while. It's funny, actually, that um, in Australia, when I was working in a bookshop there, there was sort of a national survey that was done every year to pick the 100 greatest books of all time. And it would just be updated every year. And Andre Levy's uh, Small Island was always there. And it, so it sort of goes to show that her books, while being very much focused on a particular part of society in a particular country they were always really universal and like universally loved as well her themes were really topical and important and urgent but she's also hugely funny and we we had a bit of her on the podcast early this year um, talking about the long song which came afterwards but here she is in 2011 talking with john mullen at the guardian book club about small island and now i'm just going to read a little bit of hortense It brought it all back to me. Celia Langley. Celia Langley standing in front of me, her hands on her hips and her head in a cloud. And she is saying, Oh, Hortense, when I am older. All her dreaming began with, When I am older. When I am older, Hortense, I will be leaving Jamaica and I will be going to live in England. This is when her voice became high class and her nose pointing to the air. Well, as far as her round, flat nose could. And she swayed as she brought the picture to her mind's eye. Hortense, in England, I will have a big house with a bell at the front door and I will ring the bell. And she made the sound. Ding-a-ling, ding-a-ling. I will ring the bell in this house when I am in England. That is what will happen to me when I am older. I said nothing at the time. I just nodded and said, you surely will, Celia Langley, you surely will. I did not dare to dream that it would one day be I who would go to England. It would one day be I who would sail on a ship as big as a world and feel the sun's heat on my face gradually change from roasting to caressing. But there was I, standing at the door of a house in London and ringing the bell, pushing my finger to hear the ding-a-ling, ding-a-ling. Oh, Celia Langley, where were you then with your big ideas and your nose in the air? Could you see me? Could you see me there in London? 
Hortense Roberts married with a gold ring and a wedding dress in a trunk. Mrs. Joseph, Mrs. Gilbert Joseph. What do you think of that, Celia Langley? There was I in England, ringing the doorbell on one of the tallest houses I had ever seen. I was thinking, as you were reading that, Andrea, what I said at the beginning about the novel's popularity, I suppose, um, that I wondered, I mean, it's got a very, as we heard, it's different voices. It's also got a back-and-forth chronology. Mm -hmm. It's cheering, that book that's actually so complicated structurally has been so loved and so popular. I mean, did you feel when you were putting it together, when you were constructing it because it is like a kind of complicated architectural thing, that you were taking a bit of a risk in making it, you know, multiple narrators and sort of existing in lots of different, in different times. Uh, I didn't think I was taking a risk, no. Um, and the thing is, the way that I wrote it, I wrote it in different bits and then sort of put it together at the end. So I wasn't writing it in a chronology. So I, I hadn't sort of realised the back and forth and right. uh, quite so much as you would have thought I would have done. It was only once I'd got it all, the whole there, I realised that we were, you know, it was going back and forth and it was doing... And I, but I, I didn't think that, that it would be a problem for people. And I don't think it's proved a problem. No, no, Although, yes, when, when it first came out, I think that there were some people maybe in America who sort of said, oh, I don't like the back, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a bit tough for them. But, um, <laughs> but uh, nobody has ever sort of said, said that since then. In a way, some of these kind of structural tricks, which maybe, I don't know, 30 or 40 years ago would have made a book seem rather avant-garde, and now things which readers are sort of quite ready to accept, aren't yeah. they? Well, I mean, I think I learned my storytelling from uh, TV and film. Yeah. And, uh, and I think we're very used to the vocabulary of sort of going back and forth and doing all sorts of staying with a plot and yes. knowing that yeah. it's gone back and gone all wibbly and you know it's sort of, you know. So I don't think, um, I think it's so difficult to do it in, in storytelling in a written book anymore. The great Andrea Levy. And if you want to hear the whole podcast, and I can assure you it is very worthwhile, mm-hmm. search Guardian Books Podcast with Andrea Levy. In next week's podcast, we'll be considering how much the planet influences us. A lot of our attention is rightly focused on the effect that we, the human race, has on the planet. But is it possible that the veins of coal deep, deep beneath Earth's surface have affected how generations of people vote? Or that Grecian democracy was founded thanks to some rocky hills? Lewis Dartnell wants us to think differently about how the Earth has made us who we are. Meanwhile, do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And join the discussion on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. For now, from me, Claire Armistead. Me, Sean Kane. And our producer, Susanna Tresillian. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.